This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. This is part two of the four-part series on the Dominguez and Escalante Expedition of 1776. If you haven't given the previous intro episode a listen, you ought to, or you may be as lost as our expedition will find themselves a few times. So after the intro music by Derek Knowlton, called The Great Wide Open. Derek is a very good and talented buddy of mine from my days back in Oklahoma City. After the intro music, we'll just dive right into the beginning of this expedition since we didn't quite start it last time. And yeah, you heard that right. It is a four-part series. So, let's start. Finally, July 29th, the day of departure had arrived, and after a celebration of their exciting journey to come, which was held at the military chapel in Santa Fe, the ten men of the Dominguez and Escalante expedition were off, down the well-worn path towards the history books. This first path would take them to the Tewa-speaking Pueblo of Santa Clara. No doubt they had smiles on their faces and excitement in their step. The governor was no doubt there to see them off, as well as family members, friends, and lovers. Behind them, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, which are an offshoot of those long and imposing Rocky Mountains, the southernmost portion of the Rocky Mountains, really. They would have slowly disappeared from view. Uh, Briggs actually has a great excerpt in his book about these mountains. A Spanish lieutenant in the 1760s had drawn a map of Santa Fe inscribed. Now quoting the Spaniard. To the west of the villa, there was a chain of very high forested mountains which reach so far from south to north that its limits are unknown to even the Comanches, who came from the north, ever along the base of said Sierra during the entire migration, which, they say, was very long. End all quotes. These men would become quite accustomed to these Rocky Mountains for the next few weeks. But for now, the Blood of Christ Mountains would slowly fade from view behind them. The following day, they'd reach the old Tewa town of Abiquiu, where they would stay for two days. It was their last stop before the wild and woolly unknown west came calling beyond. In the footnotes for that last stop in the Spanish realm, Ted J. Warner sums up what must have been happening within the expedition before the initial thrust into the wilderness. Abiquiu was on the frontier and was the last contact which the explorers had with a Spanish settlement for the duration of the journey, and one can readily imagine the final rush to complete provisions and send final messages, 
and the anticipation with which the group prepared to move on. End quote. The town had been a rough and tumble place, where Ute slaves were traded to the Spaniards for horses and knives, and where the priest of that church there, Sebastian Fernandez, according to Dominguez, who, remember, had visited all the churches in New Mexico, according to Dominguez, Sebastian Fernandez um, would practice something that would soon become popular again in New Mexico uh, down the line. But something that had been popular for centuries before in Spain. Dominguez wrote, quote, Fridays of Lent, after dark, discipline is attended by those who come voluntarily, because the Father merely proposes it to them. And, following his good example, there is a crowd of Indian and citizens. End quote. In this instance, discipline, it means self-flagellation, whipping one's self. Fifty years from this time, in the 1820s, a group known as the Penitentes would be all the rage in New Mexico, and they were all about self-flagellation, as well as reenactments of the crucifixion. After that, once the city came under U.S. authority, the army would occupy Albuquerque and the area while trying to keep Navajos, Utes, and Hickoria Apaches on their reservations. Today, the town and its surrounding area is best known for being the place near where Georgia O'Keeffe had her ghost ranch. One of my favorite hikes of all time, the Kitchen Mesa hike, is at Ghost Ranch. From the top of the Kitchen Mesa, you can see the Rio Chama, and that is the river that the D&E crew were following. After Abiquiu, they followed the Chama, although it seems it was a little slow going on account of some rocks and little mesas. They would camp early that night after Abiquiu, after getting caught in a nice monsoon-style downpour of heavy rain, which the Southwest loves to throw at travelers. I myself have been caught in a few of these monsoons. Prior to me visiting the American Southwest and exploring, I did not know that outside of Southern Asia that there were monsoons. I didn't know the Southwest was inundated with massive rainstorms. In the American Southwest from June 15th through September 30th, what's known as the North American Monsoon System literally rains down upon the Four Corners region and beyond, bringing that much-needed and precious water. The huge rainbursts and resulting flash floods are the essential tool in carving the amazing landscape that I love so much. And it's also possible those haunting, floating, legless petroglyph figures that are found throughout the Southwest that were carved by the ancient ones, it's possible those represent rain bursts themselves, with the tops of the figures being proto-cachinas that live in the clouds, and the bodies are that life-saving rain. It's just a theory, and not my theory, but I love it. The next day, the expedition stumbled through a scrub oak thicket so dense that they lost four horses in it. 
and uh, they had to take some time to look for him. And then, after emerging from this thick thicket, uh, they came to a pasture filled with beautiful purple and white flowers that modern historians can't quite figure out what species of flower it was. They would, thankfully, find the horses, and then they would find themselves in yet another thicket of beautiful flowers, which Escalante clearly enjoyed. He wrote rather fondly and admiringly about the flowers. He doesn't ever write about the landscape, really, except to say how harsh it is, but he does love his plants. He would go on to eat or grind into a drink just about every flower he'd come across, which is pretty brave in my opinion. Roberts writes of Escalante's lack of landscape descriptions, and he does so because it annoyed him, just like it annoys me. Like when I write in my journal, after trips out west, I write quite descriptively and extensively and longingly about the cliffs and the mountains and the streams and all of the American Southwest beauty. Escalante? Not so much. He will go through some of the most beautiful places on earth, and he won't even mention the grandeur, except to complain about the difficulty of traveling through it. Roberts writes, quote, 2,000 vertical feet of ribbed quartzite, the Brazos, is the biggest cliff in New Mexico. And he goes on to write, Escalante makes no mention of this dramatic landmark, which must have frowned down on his team for three August days. End quote. It turns out, I have been to the top of the Brazos Cliffs on Highway 64, which winds its way through the Carson National Forest. Although, at the time, I did not know that. I didn't know that until I was going doing research for this episode. Uh, I heard that description and I was like, wait a minute, I think, I think I've been there. Uh, when I went, it was in April of 2019 and the mountains and cliffs were covered in a thick layer of snow. Uh, I snapped a picture of the Brazos summit, again, without knowing what it even was. I just thought it was pretty. The information and placards had been hidden or obscured due to the copious amounts of snow. It was, it was cold and windy, but it was a beautiful scene. Now, pictures will be up at the site as usual. Uh, actually, all the pictures I've ever taken of the places that they will go through will be up at the site. Because it turns out, I've inadvertently traveled quite a bit of their route myself, or at least what you can travel by car or short hikes. For a little while, the team is still following the Chama River, a river I've mentioned in previous episodes. It's the river the Tewa legends say they followed from Mesa Verde. It flows eventually into the Rio Grande from the north, uh, from the Rockies in Colorado, actually just across the New Mexican border. So it makes sense to follow the Chama out of Santa Fe past Abiquiu. But in a move that vexes historians and researchers, the team inexplicably leaves the comfortable water and just wander the harsh landscape. If you've ever been to the Four Corners in August, you know it is deadly hot and sunny. Luckily, they found a spring, but it was so shallow that the horses couldn't drink. They had to dig holes in the mud. And this theme of leaving the shores of rivers to take inexplicably difficult or confusing paths is, unfortunately for them, a reoccurring one. It will happen multiple times on their journey. They would, though, after this weird meandering, they would find the river again, and they would decide they needed to cross it. 
But as they did so, one of the men, the 60-year-old friend from Zuni, Juan Pedro Cisneros, nearly drowned. Apparently his horse's head went underwater after the horse had stepped into a sinkhole. I'm not sure if all the crew members could swim, but the fast-moving waters of many a river proved to be the toughest element they end up facing during the duration of their journey. Rivers and their crossing proved to be their harshest foe. Well, uh, that and along with the cold and hunger. For this crossing, everyone survived, thankfully. Although, despite almost losing a man and the drama that must have caused... All Escalante could write about in his journal was how good the surrounding landscape would be for future Spanish farmers. So, I guess he does write about the landscape after all. But only ever to say how good it would be for crops and colonists. This is another theme in the journal. On August 3rd, yet again to the befuddlement of the modern reader, the party leaves the Rio Chama to trek out across the hills. And in these hills, they lose a mule. And also in these hills, Escalante comments, quote, there was no water at this site, end quote. That's probably because you left the river and its water. They eventually do find the mule. Despite the area's quote-unquote broken brambly ground and the fact that no water was found nearby, they named their camp for the night in the most Spanishly religious way they knew how. The Most Holy Trinity, or in Spanish, La Santísima Trinidad. They would name every campsite every night, or nearly every night, and it almost always is a religious name. The next day, they continued northwesterly through a trailless alien environment until they came into a forest, still lacking that basic human necessity of water. Briggs writes of the necessity of water in the southwest, in case you were unaware, uh, but he writes, quote, In every account of southwestern exploration, before and since, water is of constant moment. Man can carry enough for several days, but man's animals need new sources daily to carry on. End quote. So, continuously leaving the sources of water is quite puzzling and dangerous. You'd think... The Munez brothers would know that as well, right? I mean, honestly, they might. And the reason they're leaving the banks of the river is because the canyon becomes too narrow for the horses and mules, and the guides maybe knew that. But I'm not sure. Their behavior during this expedition is strange. As I mentioned in the introduction, Andres, and probably his brother Lucrecio, but both had actually done some exploring in the area north of Abiquiu some 11 years prior to the DNA expedition, way back in 1765. That expedition, probably one of the first to the area that far north by the, by the Spaniards, that had been led by a man named Juan Maria de Rivera. Unfortunately for us, almost nothing exists in the historical record except his recently found journal, but at the time, 1776, both Dominguez and Escalante were familiar with his journey and his work, which must have been somewhat circulated because it seems they brought along Rivera's journal on their own expedition. Obviously, we've got to talk a little about Rivera's expedition because it's rather exciting as well. At least, what's known of it. 
Rivera was probably born in 1738 in Chihuahua to parents who had been prominent before the revolt of 1680, but it seems they lost all but their lives in the revolution. By 1765, though, we know the 27-year-old was exploring the territory that would eventually be known as Colorado, and he was the first European-American to do so, as far as, as anyone knows. He actually went twice, and both times he interacted heavily with the U.M. Paiute American Indians. And that fact is rather puzzling because, not to spoil our adventure with D&E here, but they don't run into an Indian for 28 days. D&E, at least. It seems unbelievable, but it is true. Uh, back to Rivera, though. Rivera had probably been a miner, as in mines, uh, before his exploring days, but during his exploring days, that became secondary to his real task, which was probably a reconnaissance and information-finding expedition. But on that first entrada into modern-day Colorado, Rivera left Abiquiu in June, and they made it to Chimney Rock, that uh, far eastern outpost of the Chacoans I talked about seemingly so long ago. That significant ritual landscape town, you know, that uh, mapped the stars and the phases of the moon? Well, during that first expedition, they named quite a few rivers and places that names still stick around to this day. Names like the Navajo River, San Juan River, the Animas, and the Dolores, just to name a few. All river travelers to the area are familiar with these rivers today, and if you've been listening to the past episodes, the San Juan River has been important as well. Towards the end of that first journey, Rivera met up with a ute named Cuero de Lobo, or Wolfskin, and Wolfskin was to show Rivera some silver in the area of the San Juan Mountains, but that never panned out. I'm kidding, I don't actually think you pan for silver. But this looking for silver did help Rivera with the actual goal of the mission. To map out and find out not only what the heck, but who the heck was out there to the north of New Mexico. The governor at the time, Tomás Vélez de Cachupín, had recently reached a peace with the Utes that allowed the Spanish to explore the area to look for silver. Silver became the talk of the region after a big old chunk of the stuff was brought down to Abiquiu by a Ute man who promised there was actually way more of it up in their, in their hills. So looking for silver was the pretext for Ketchupin to explore north or to send somebody else to explore north. Thomas Alexander, in his piece The Rivera Expedition that he wrote for the Utah State Government, said Cachupin asked Rivera after that first journey to, quote, return to the lands he had just visited. Velez de Cachupin instructed the explorer to Rio del Tizon, the Colorado. The governor also asked him to learn the extent of Indian settlements to the north, whether other Europeans had yet arrived on the scene, and whether Lake Copala, Gran Tehuayo, the reputed seat of a wealthy civilization sought by Coronado, lay in the unexplored territory. Since Valles de Cachupin knew of the expansion of other European powers, he thought the possibility of European colonies to the north quite likely. End quote. So, a lot of the same reasons for the D&E expedition. 
Another author, Khalil Jacobs, in his Phantom Pathfinder, Juan Maria Antonio de Rivera in his Expedition, also writes of the reasons for Rivera's adventure. A careful reading of the authorization for the second entrada reveals the deeper intent of the expedition. Governor Cachupin directed Rivera and his companions to go disguised as traitors and conceal the fact they were Spanish, to reconnoiter the land along the trail, at the crossing, and on the other side of the river, to determine the names of the nations they encountered, and to ascertain the languages of the native groups and their attitude towards the Spanish, and to make a journal account of the trip and map the trail to the crossing. This is consistent with objectives issued to people making a military reconnaissance. The instructions authorize the search for precious metals only on the return trip, clearly suggesting that the search for silver was to be a private quest, or at most, a secondary goal. End quote. Again, a lot like D&E. On this second journey to find the Colorado River of uh, Rivera and to map out the lands in between it and New Mexico, he would be given guide after guide and taken on detour after detour by the American Indians. Jacobs in Phantom Pathfinder writes again, It is obvious throughout the diary that the Utes resisted all attempts by the Spanish to find the route to the crossing of El Rio Grande. He's writing about the Colorado River. Crossing of El Rio Grande and to make contact with the people on the other side. It is apparent the Utes wanted to make the trip so difficult and dangerous that Rivera would become discouraged and disheartened, give up his quest, and return to Santa Fe without finding the crossing and without making contact with the people on the other side of the river. End quote. So this second adventure with Rivera was a meandering, wandering one, with guides being swapped out almost daily. Uh, during the second entrada, the Rivera and his crew would pass by the Abajo Mountains, those beautiful high mountains in between Canyonlands and Cedar Mesa in Utah, in between Blanding and Monticello. He'd also pass by the Lasalles, and eventually he'd travel through today's city of Moab, and on the banks on the Colorado River, he would indeed find the Rio Tizon, obviously, and I believe he would cross it. And it's near this crossing in eastern Utah, near Moab, that Rivera was told some information that would be useful down the road. Jacobs writes, quote, He listened with great interest as his Ute friends informed him of the trail they used when they visited the Spanish on the lower Colorado River. This would be welcome news for the planners of the empire, the Royal Corps of Engineers, who, being aware of the resistance offered by the Hopi and Apache nations to the passage of commerce through their territories to the regions of the lower Colorado River, sought a route to that area through the territory of the then-friendly Ute nations. Perhaps the groundwork was laid at that early date for what developed into the Dominguez-Escalante expedition in 1776. End quote. On both adventures, much like d &E, Rivera had no armed escorts or soldiers. Which, I mean, uh, that seems pretty brave, honestly going up to a wild territory that you don't know, of people you don't know, even though there is a peace with the Utes, still. On the second entrada, he was actually told by the governor to dress like a local and not an official. And so that was he could blend in and better find out some information, do that reconnoitering. The Spanish, it seems, knew the Indians didn't really want anything to do with them, and ultimately, the ruse didn't stick anyways. 
but the information Rivera found out was instrumental in the planning and logistics of the DNE expedition. And Rivera's journal acted somewhat as a guide, albeit a not too helpful one, in the end. But his journal acted as a guide for DNE and crew. And speaking of guides, Dominguez and Escalante really wouldn't have much better luck, as you'll learn with guides. And their journey wasn't necessarily led by the brightest either, it seems. I could be wrong. But right down to Andres Munez himself, who, like I mentioned earlier, claimed to be on the Rivera expedition. But it seems he may have been stretching the truth a little. Here's one final quote from Jacobs. Another irony lies in the assertion by the Dominguez Escalante guide and interpreter, Andres Munez who claimed to have been with Rivera on his entrada, and affirmed that Rivera went over the Uncompagre Mountains to the confluence of the Gunnison and Uncompagre Rivers, instead of the great Tizon. He stated that although he was with Rivera, he did not accompany him to the river. He stayed behind for the distance of a three-day march. However, that appears to be contrary to fact, because Andres Munez was not listed in the Rivera diary. So if he had traveled with Rivera on his expeditions, it would have had to have been on a follow-up trip after 1765. From the events recorded in the diary, it is evident that he could not have stayed behind for three days. His statement to Escalante probably was made to increase his prestige among the Padres and his peers. Yet, it caused historians to be led afield for many years. They treated Munez's statements as fact, and never gave Rivera credit for finding the Ute crossing of the Colorado River. End quote. Hmm. Well, after Rivera returns to Santa Fe, he simply vanishes from the historical record. From brave explorer of new lands to disappearing in his own. But as that previous passage explains, he may have gone on further expeditions uh, just by himself. Maybe to find silver, maybe out of curiosity. And maybe Munez was on one of those. But it is doubtful on those further excursions that he would have made it all the way to the Colorado slash Tizon River near Moab. So now back to D&E and the Munez brothers yet again. While the group was wandering the area very near the Colorado border in modern Hickoria Apache land, something disheartening happened among the group. Something throws off the cohesion and sours the band for a bit. Although Escalante gives no indication of what that betrayal was, except in the name that they give the area. Escalante writes, quote, We halted in a canyon which, on account of a certain incident, we named El Canyon del Injano. End quote. The Canyon of Deceit. Again, he did not expound upon what that certain incident of deceit was. But could it have been the Munoz brothers? What if, after some chastisement of, by the Padres of why on earth they were being dragged all over God's green earth, why couldn't their guides find the way? Why did they keep leaving rivers? Sure, the Rivera expedition was 11 years prior, but this was ridiculous. Maybe after some berating by the father, the brothers caved? And what if they admitted that their history as guides of the Rivera were stretched, to say the least? I honestly have no idea, but it would seem appropriate. 
and D&E aren't too happy with the brothers for the remainder of the journey. Just take this passage from August 5th. Quote, the experts lost the trail and even the slight acquaintance they showed to have had with this terrain. End quote. It isn't a stretch to imagine the disappointment the leaders of the expedition, and probably Maria Pacheco as well, but I can see the group asking why they were traveling the seemingly silly way they were throughout this tough and harsh land. Until finally, the Munez brothers broke down and admitted to a little deceit. They were just guessing. As usual, I have no idea, but I think it's a really solid theory and not particularly one that I read. Matter of fact, Roberts takes the opposite position. The Munez brothers were great and the Padres were just, again, racist or whatever. The area today that they are at in early August, as I just mentioned, near the confluence of the Navajo River and Amargo Creek, that area is on the Hickoria Apache Reservation. But at the time, the nearest Hickoria Apache would have been around Taos, not this far west. As usual with these sorts of things, their reservation sits where it does today because the United States government decided to put them there. The Hickoria Apache actually claimed the area from Taos to modern-day Kansas as their ancestral homeland. Although, ancestral is a strong use of the term since they're from way up north. But ancestral at the time of the founding of the reservation by President Grover Cleveland in 1887 at least. That much is true. So during the time of the Escalante jaunt through the modern-day Apache Reservation, the Spanish group would have met no Apaches. That's if in they met any Indians at all. Which I already spoiled by telling you they don't for some confounding 28 days. Although I am beginning to think that this was on purpose by the Indians. As we know, the American Indians would have seen this big group coming from miles away. Surely they knew they were headed their way, but as the Rivera expedition showed, they wanted nothing to do with them. Also, events later in the journey will prove that same thing, as groups of Utes and Paiutes, after group, flat out refused to offer their guiding services, despite the Spaniards begging and offering whatever they could because they were in a bind. But that's, that's later. Around this time, they also crossed over the Continental Divide, although they probably would not have known its significance, although the writings about of Maria and Pacheco later do suggest that they may have known, but the Continental Divide is that invisible line on the landscape that determines where the water will flow into which sea will ultimately empty itself into. To the east of the line, every creek, stream, and river will flow to the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean. To the west of the line, every precious blue highway will flow to the Pacific or to the Sea of Cortez. On the 5th of August, the team finally finds the water they need at the San Juan River, north of its confluence with the Navajo River. You'll remember the San Juan River as the one the Mesa Verdeans followed out of Tehuayo before they got to the Chama, and then down to the Rio Grande. It is also the river that separated the Chaco Aztecans from the Mesa Verdeans, at least until the Mesa Verdeans came down from their mesa and inhabited the old ruins and Aztec, making it their own. 
I will talk about that in more detail when I revisit my Anasazi Civil War and Migration episodes sometime in the future. Because I got some stuff wrong. I also got a lot correct. And there's constantly new information coming out. Uh, I would like to correct some of the record and uh, I have made some friends with this podcast who have pointed out information to me, uh, which is awesome. And so a revisit or an addendum, if you will, will be necessary in the future. But back to August 5th in Escalante. On that day, he seems to have wandered by himself, which is the first time in the journal that it's mentioned anyone left by themselves. It may have happened before, but you would think as a group you would want to stay together. Although in the future, they won't. In the journal, though, he comments on the San Juan River and how it was as mighty as the Rio Grande. Despite that mightiness, though, they fjord it, make it to the other side, and bed down for the evening. They call their camp that night Nuestra Señora de las Nieves, or Our Lady of the Snows. This could have been because towering to their north were the possibly still snow-capped, still snow-capped, despite it being the end of summer, but tearing at the sky to the north were the San Juan Mountains, which rise over 14,000 feet just north of Cortez and Durango and Mesa Verde. They're beautiful and imposing mountains, and you can see them from even way on top of Cedar Mesa in Utah. Briggs writes beautifully about them, as always. Gray granite peaks up there, 14 of them over 14,000 feet, are broken by sharp pinnacles and deep crevasses, erosion having yet to do its polishing. As with several ranges en route, the San Juans rise from a semi-desert base to Arctic above timberline, lacking only the tropical of nature's seven life zones. End quote. August 5th also happens to be the feast day of Our Lady of the Snow, not snows. So maybe the name had a double meaning. The following day, some trouble struck the party when Don Maria di Pacheco, or the Don, but on the 6th, M&P fell ill with severe stomach troubles. Or as Briggs put it, quote-unquote, Miera had a stomachache. It won't be the last time he or other members of the group would fall ill. They gave no name to their encampment that evening, and today it's believed to be under the water of man-made Navajo Lake anyways. Thankfully, the following day, some good news for MMP landed when, as Escalante put it, God willed that he got better, so that we could continue on our way, end quote. And continue they did. They'd crossed through the land and over many a river that Rivera had named, like the Piedra, the Pinos, the Florido, the Animas. And once they crossed that one, they came to Chimney Rock. I have mentioned Chimney Rock in my episodes a surprising number of times. It's a shame I've only ever driven past it during the off-season, in the months of December, February, March, and April, when it is closed. One day I will visit it, though. And that visit will be even better, because now I know its significance. On the 8th, they traveled through modern-day Durango, Colorado, which is a bustling town of almost 20,000 people. One of my archaeology professors at OU called it the northern boundary of the archaeological boundaries of the American Southwest. Durango, Mexico, to Durango, Colorado, 
and Las Vegas, New Mexico, to Las Vegas, Nevada. Maybe that's true for archaeology, but I tend to extend the American Southwest to include the Colorado Plateau, all of it, the Basin and Range, regions of Nevada and California, and the Mojave. I definitely include cities as far north as Moab and Fruita, which sit on opposite sides of the Utah-Colorado border, the Alabama hills below the tallest point in the lower 48, which is Mount Whitney, all the way over in California are certainly southwestern-esque, and Big Bend in Texas. There's definitely a feel of the southwest there, and many other places as well. Even the Badlands and Black Hills of South Dakota, although that's a reach, even I'll admit. Maybe that's just the American West. Anyways, a little off topic. At Durango, Escalante comments, instead of how great it would be for a place to have a town, which he does constantly, and many of those places are now devoid of humans, by the way, and are just ghost towns. At Durango, he writes how terrible of a place it would be to settle. And instead, it should just be stayed in for one night at most. Today, it's the largest town the Dini expedition has passed through so far on their adventure since Santa Fe. I mean, there will be bigger towns later, but few, really. While the crew clambered through Animus Canyon, it uh, wasn't easy going. And then climbing out of the canyon that the river flows through on the 9th was, quote, quite difficult, consisting of plenty of rock and being very steep in places, end quote. So again, maybe there was a point to leaving the water's edge every so often as they did. As a person, you can find a way through that canyon, those those areas. But with all those horses and mules, it would be a lot tougher. And those horses and mules weren't eating as well on the sandy banks of the river as they would out in the valleys above. Because of the weary beasts of burden and the climbing out of the canyon, the day was slow going. On top of that, though, the region would prove to be, quote, excessively cold even in the months of July and August, end quote. It rained a ton on them, too, and Escalante would write of the region that it was, quote, unquote, very moist. The trail turned to mud, and the cold was starting to get to him, especially Dominguez, who, on the 9th of August, was recorded as having a, quote, roomy flow in his face and head, end quote. The man had a gross cold and apparently a pretty nasty one that included fevers and chills and and the whole nine yards. All of this, the cold, the rain, the head cold, it forced them to tarry a while and to take their time in this area. Curiously, for days the group would have been in eyesight of the beautiful and haunting Sleeping Ute Mountain, but they never once mentioned its presence. I have talked about the mountain and the area before, especially in my Chaco and Anasazi series. They were in the land of the Mesa Verdeans, the DNA crew were. They were in the land of the Tewa Puebloans, who now lived back in the Santa Fe area. In later writings after the expedition, Escalante will remark how this particular area was the homeland of the Puebloans before their migration, which tells me they knew of the oral traditions. Or at least enough, they knew enough to know that part, that they came from there, which is pretty important. The mountain today is off-limits to all but the Ute and those who get permission. That's probably because of the haunting part I mentioned. Burned kivas with children's skulls stuffed into the air vents. 
evidence of mancorn. Before the Civil War, the civil authority, whatever it may have been, rotating princely kings, possibly, known as an altipedal. But state-sanctioned violence would decimate a household who was breaking the rules. Maybe performing witchcraft? Not paying taxes? Whatever it was, they were defying the state and breaking some taboo. So the state sent its thugs to the house as a warning to other rule-breakers. Your walls will come down and you will be eaten. Your bones will be scattered on the surface of the land to be found in a thousand years by people from across the sea. Today, Canyons of the Ancients and its fantastic Sand Canyon Trail to Sand Canyon Pueblo sit just north of the mountain on the border of Utah, off of State Road G. It's a place I've only been to once, but I cannot wait to go back. That hike is one of my all-time favorites. It is beautiful, quiet, filled with ruins and spectacular views, and it is, it is haunting. It is inescapably haunting. And I'm not the only one to feel it. Briggs writes of August 12th, which is the day that we are at in the diary, he writes thusly, with Dominguez better and, quote, to change terrain and climate rather than to make progress, end quote, our expedition traversed an easy eight and a half leagues. Did the departure reflect the guide's eagerness to leave the Mesa Verde vicinity? Bolton asks, quote, with all its wonders, Mesa Verde is mighty spooky. And all quotes. Bolton is the author I mentioned in the very beginning who was the first to really write about D&E back in the 50s. So Bolton, Briggs, Roberts, Childs, Craig Childs, myself. The feeling of the place is unmissable. Even the Mesa Verdeans left. And their descendants rarely return. And speaking of ruins... The very next day, the 13th of August, the crew would purposefully find and inspect some actual Anasazi ruins that are today known as Escalante Ruins. He wrote, quote, On an elevation on the south bank of the river in ancient times, there was a small settlement of the same form as those of the Indians of New Mexico, as is shown by the ruins which we purposefully examined. End quote. Normally, the Spaniards could care less about such things as ruins or temples, especially after they looted them. So it's curious that he went out of his way to say they visited the site. Roberts isn't convinced that Escalante ruins, which is today right next to the Canyons of the Ancients Visitor Center by the McPhee Reservoir, but he's not convinced those ruins named after the explorer were the ones, the same ones that D&E crew actually visited. I, I don't think it's too important, but I think they indeed are the same ones. It's very probable they knew of the ruins from Rivera, and later American explorers would find the same ruins just on account of their location. They're in a beautiful setting on a hill with a great view of the land. It only makes sense that even men in search of the Grand Canyon, like Captain John Maycomb in 1859, he would find them, and he would comment on them, and then he would leave them for future explorers to find. I've been to the Anasazi Heritage Center slash Canyons of the Ancients Visitor Center because I wanted to see the impressive museum in the ruins. But alas, 
It was closed on that cold, dark, windy, snowy, late December day. But one day, I will visit it. The exploration of the ruins by D&E brings up that yet again confounding fact that they don't run into another living soul. Well, that's not true. They do run into a living soul. But they don't run into an Indian for 28 freaking days after leaving Santa Fe. And the more I think about it and talk about it, because, I mean, I've already written up this episode, but sometimes I think when I, when I go through it, when I'm talking it, I am convinced it's because the Utes and Paiutes took the exact opposite approach as they did the last time a group entered their lands. Instead of sending these Padres guide after confounding guide, they just completely avoided them altogether. They probably figured normally rather correctly, without any guides, these Spaniards would starve or die, or at least turn back before ever making it too far north. But they underestimated these explorers. Dominguez and Escalante weren't your average Spaniard. They were Franciscan friars, and we know all about them. Even still, one would think they'd at least run into a Navajo Hogan or a Navajo person eventually, right? Where are the Navajos? They will, over five months, wander through a huge swath of Dineta, or Navajo land. Yet, throughout the entire expedition, they will not a single time see a Navajo. Or, really, even any evidence of Navajo. Roberts also questions this and writes about a possible explanation after asking an anthropologist friend. One, he means explanation, one was suggested to me by my friend Matt Liebman, a Harvard anthropology professor whose specialty is the Southwest. Matt wondered whether the Indians might have been busy with the annual transhumans. The Navajos, of all the region's tribes, had become the master shepherders, driving their flocks each summer into the mountains at at and above Timberline. Perhaps, when D&E passed through, and Rivera before them, They missed the Navajos altogether, because they never climbed higher than about 7,500 feet above sea level, well below Timberline, end quote. I mean, Rivera doesn't run into any Navajos either. I mean, sure, this is possible, but is it feasible? The other explanation is the one I figured when reading and have suggested already, and that is that the Indians saw them coming and ignored them because of how little they packed and how they didn't seem worthy of trading with, or stealing from, or that they weren't a threat, and they just weren't worth interacting with. They did not want these Spaniards penetrating too far into their lands, so to dissuade them from further exploration, they just ignored them and left their fate in God's hands. But apparently, God was indeed looking out for D&E. And that's exactly what Escalante was thinking as well. Remember when he told the Hopi man who warned him of the impending death by a thousand Navajos? Quote, I was not worried because I trusted in God, who is infinitely more powerful than all the men there ever were, are, or will be. End quote. By the 14th of August, the expedition's leader, Dominguez, had recovered from his cold, so they set off down the Dolores River. And they covered 22 miles that day and walked through some 
tall and craggy canyons and sagebrush, and then they cross the river. But historians and researchers who study and follow the journal are confused by these directions and these writings because there was no tall and craggy canyon in this area, unless they got off course and went down some tributary. Roberts writes of their curious paths. Throughout their long journey, the Padres seemed to have suffered from a kind of canyon phobia. Already they had veered away from the easy course of the Chama to blunder through brush and forest and over high hills in search of the Navajo River. Now, they seemed deliberately to have left the canyon of the Dolores, only to have rediscovered it downstream. After a ride up a side canyon, they went nowhere and across a dry mesa. At each campsite, the team needed abundant water for both men and mounts. Why not simply stick close to the perennial flow of the Dolores? End quote. I've kind of guessed at why they keep leaving the water, but really there is no way of knowing. We can only guess. Briggs in his book suggests it's because the cattle wouldn't have fit in the canyons. But that doesn't fit the narrative I'm telling, because I don't believe they brought cattle. I'd even say, I 100% believe there is no cattle among the expedition. He bases this guess on previous entradas and excursions by the Spanish. But in this one, nowhere is it written that they were paid for, brought, or at the entire journal or in writing prior or after by anyone in the crew. There is no mention of cattle. They almost starve many a time, and eventually they will go hunting although it seems like it's a very rare occurrence for them, which is, that in and of itself is strange, because they are in a land teeming with game. Just like as it is today, really. I mean, they kill and eat horses later, so there's no way they brought cattle. Let's just leave it at that. Another reason they took to wandering could have been because the Munez brothers fabricated their past expeditions to the area and had no idea what they were doing. It could be because they're following the wrong trails. I mean, there are thousands of trails out there that are thousands of years old, made by both men and beast. You'd almost think Mieri Pacheco would have a say in where they go, and indeed I think he does, it turns out, as we'll later learn. But it's anyone's guess why they took the meanderous routes they end up taking all the time. But to be fair... Down the river a bit of where they are, there is indeed a steep 1,500-foot canyon, so maybe the Munez brothers knew what they were doing. I don't know. Parsing through various sources in the journal itself, it can get a little confusing at times. Plus, the tangent side canyons I like to explore myself, along with the authors and the random memory hills I climb in telling this story. It can get a little confusing and confounding, and for that I do apologize, but stay with me. I will be a better guide to you than whatever was leading the DNE crew. And speaking of this crew, these ten men, on that same day, August 14th, they're about to gain two more companions. Roberts writes of this incident, quote, Sometime during that day, an event took place that must have been the most monumental occurrence to befall the expedition since leaving Santa Fe. It is maddening that Escalante narrates it in a single paragraph in his journal and never again refers to what it signified for the team. And even more maddening is the tone in which he recounts the event, 
reverberating with annoyance, shading into disgust. Here's the passage. And now he's quoting the journal. This afternoon, we were overtaken by a coyote and a genizaro from Abiquiu. The first, Philippe, and the second, Juan Domingo by name. So as to wander among the heathens, they had run away without the permission of their masters of that pueblo. With the desire of accompanying us as their excuse, we had no use for them. But to forestall the mischief which either through their ignorance or through their malice they might do by wandering further among the Utahs if we insisted on their going back, we took them on as companions. End all quotes. So for two weeks, escaped Indian workers had been following them in the wilderness, and they never noticed until the men wanted to be found for 234 miles or so. How on earth were these guys so blind and deaf? Not even the storied soldier MMP had witnessed them following him. Or at least it wasn't recorded that he had. Not even the horses picked up on their followers. Those two had had no fires for two weeks in the cold and the rain. What had they eaten? It's actually super impressive, honestly. But as Roberts points out, and as Escalante himself wrote, the group was not pleased about this turn of events. I like to put myself in the moccasins of these men, often. And I did so for this event as well, and frankly, I don't know how I'd react. I mean, strength in numbers, right? But also that's more mouths to feed. But they may have knowledge and skills that could come in handy. I mean, I would think so, but there's the issue of that word, coyote, that Escalante uses. Roberts defines it as, quote, a coyote was what in frontier culture would later be called a half-breed, looked down on as inferior by citizens with pure Spanish blood in their veins. End quote. Remember when I defined the term genizaro in the beginning? The indentured servants until 18, those Indians or, or half-Indians that abounded on colonial pueblos? These two men were probably of Ute origin, but have been captured and sold by Navajos or Apaches, or the Spaniards themselves, and it's possible they just wanted to go back home. Even Escalante realizes that and mentioned it in that earlier quote. You can't blame the nearly enslaved for wanting freedom. I do wonder what the others on the journey thought, though. Like MMP, or the once mayor of Zuni, Cisneros. So maybe the fact that they were escaped workers and probably considered under the charge of someone, and that would be those people probably missing them about now, maybe that irritated the men. Or it could have just been that more mouths to feed part. Or it could have just been, as Robert suggests, just racism, which I just doubt. In due time, the two new comrades, Philippe and Juan Dominguez, will earn their keep at a crucial moment. That moment involves their continued survival and the fabled Rio Tizon. The arrival of these two, though, Philippe and Juan Domingo, it seems to have put the entire crew in a bad mood, especially Escalante and Dominguez. 
for a bit after this incident, both the journey and the journal seem tinged with malaise, as Roberts wrote. It's also insultingly strange that Philippe gets no last name or surname. Now, maybe he didn't care to give one because it would have given away whoever it was that owned him if it was a powerful man at Abiquiu, and he didn't want to alarm the group by identifying his Pueblo patriarch. Or maybe he just was not given one. Or maybe his Spanish wasn't great. Regardless, it's interesting that Philippe gets no last name. On the 15th, they leave the Dolores River and trudge through some sagebush and rough country on their way to a spring that the guides promised had water. We promise, guys, there's water. But no. No water was there, and it was bone dry. Munia's brothers swing and miss again. Scouts were then sent ahead. They are not named, but scouts were sent ahead in the hopes of finding that precious water. That water that had for days, only a few days ago, rained down on them, soaking and chilling them to the bone. Thankfully, these scouts would find that water, but it was, quote, so scanty that it sufficed for the people only and not for the horse herds, end quote. But what was amazing about this water and this spring was that it had been deliberately covered, probably by the Utes. It had been hidden by rocks and logs, mostly to stop evaporation probably, but also possibly to hide it from beasts. Or as one of the guides most likely incorrectly pointed out, it could have been hidden from other Indians during times of disagreement. Nonetheless, the men, as Roberts writes, quote, realized that on the 18th day of the expedition, some 280 miles from Santa Fe, they had at last discovered signs of Indians, end quote. They still would not meet an Indian for 10 more days. They cleverly called that night's camp Aguatapada, covered water. And this camp is apparently near the modern-day city of Egnar, Colorado. Egnar. E-G-N-A-R. As in the word range backwards. No joke, y'all. I love it. Egnar. The following morning, the 16th, the expedition awoke to find half the horses had broken free overnight and were completely missing, no doubt, due to being crazed for water. Eventually, though, they were returned to the group by divine intervention, no doubt. After they found the horses, Escalante wrote about their departure, and then Briggs makes an astute observance that I hadn't really thought of. Quoting Escalante first, quote, For this reason we did not leave Aguatapada until half past ten. End quote. Here is indication both that there was a timepiece among them, and that camp usually was broken early to start marching in the coolness of a sun low in the sky. End all quotes. I read the journal first, and then Roberts, and then Briggs, and then the journal throughout those, but it wasn't until that last work, Briggs' work, that I realized they had to have had a watch. Otherwise, how would they have known of the time that is so often recorded? Unless, of course, everyone back then just knew around what time it was by looking up at the sun, which is totally plausible, I guess. I'll always be grateful for Bear Grylls for teaching me the 15-minute finger method of figuring how long one has until sunset. This method consists of each finger representing 15 minutes, like if you extend your arm fully and hold your hand out perpendicular to the ground with your pinky resting on the horizon directly below the sun. You can determine how much time, up to an hour per hand, 
you have left until the sun hits the horizon. You should try it one of these days. So that passage lets the readers and researchers know they had a watch, and they liked to leave early so as not to huff it through the southwestern sun in the heat of the day. After finding the wayward horses and leaving later than planned, they set out on a path towards the Dolores River once again. But the trail they followed disappeared. Apparently the recent rains had washed it away, and essentially they became lost, with no water and no trail. They were wanderers, wandering in a strange land. They were desperately needing to find that Dolores River for themselves, and especially for their weary, thirsty horses. The reader has to wonder, why on earth didn't the Munez guides know where this life-saving water was? Were they deliberately misleading them as had the guides during Rivera's excursion? Or were they simply clueless? If you've ever been to the Southwest or anywhere that has its fill of natural landmarks, which honestly, I feel like nowhere on earth may have, have, may have as many easily recognizable landmarks as the American Southwest, I'm biased. But there's the Navajo Mountain, the Henry Mountains, Sleeping Ute Mountain, Abajo Mountains, 50 Mile Mountain, the La Salles, the San Juan Mountains, I mean all the mountains, the San Francisco Peaks, the Comb Ridge, etc, 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 etc. But if you've ever been to the region, you know that landmarks abound and finding your way, if you've ever been there, um, finding your way should be easy, especially to something as important as a water source, like say, a river. Again, it may be that the Munoz brothers knew little to nothing of the route they were leading the expedition down, and they just blustered their way into being guides. But honestly, I could be totally wrong about that. And uh, I could be soiling their name and asking for a post-life defamation suit. I don't know. The evidence, though, points in the direction that I'm correct. And I will try to stop mentioning that. But, I mean, Escalante writes about it constantly. So, at this point, after losing the trail, maybe an argument ensued. Maybe the Padres chastised the brothers and the sour mood, since the two Genizaros joined, grew even more sour. Regardless, it seems MNP had had enough. And he set out down a canyon, today's Summit Canyon, to see where it led and to maybe get the expedition moving again. And his solo excursion, at least at first, wasn't even noticed by the Padres. Roberts writes of the incident like this. Searching the hillsides for a trail, Dominguez and Escalante did not even see him leave. Waterless once more, the team set up camp, then sent one man ahead to track Mierda down, quote-unquote, before he could get lost, end all quotes. I seriously doubt the man who could create maps in his mind, and who would go on to create the greatest map of the area until modern times, would get lost, but the Padres had to save face, at least in the written record of the account. At midnight, both the scout and M&P returned and told the party the good news. The Dolores River was reachable through the canyon, although it wouldn't be easy. The following day, they did just that, and they traveled through the tough canyon. And all the while, Escalante seems to be praising M&P's rash decision to secretly reconnaissance the way ahead. They named the canyon after the dawn. Escalante writes, quote, The canyon we named El Labyrinto de Mierda, 
because of the varied and pleasing scenery of rock cliffs, which it has on either side, and which, for being so lofty and craggy at the turns, makes the exit seem all the more difficult the further one advances, and because Don Bernardo Miera was the first one to go through it. End quote. Now that is El Labyrinto de Miera, Miera's Labyrinth. Look at that. He writes about the landscape besides in relation to what can grow there. That Summit Canyon is 2,300 feet deep. It was no doubt a beautiful but a tough hike indeed. Also, while hiking through the canyon, they came across some footprints. They were most likely Ute footprints, and that meant they were nearby. And that meant they could finally get some help, and that help could enable them, quote, to continue our journey with less difficulty and labor than we were now suffering, because none of the companions knew the waterholes and terrain ahead. End quote. There's the digs at the Munoz brothers again. I am starting to believe my own theory. But Briggs even writes tongue-in-cheek about this when he wrote, quote, Perhaps it was asking too much of the guides, even of one who had made two round trips, to recognize every landmark over hundreds of miles. End quote. At least I think he's being tongue-in-cheek. Regardless, the Munez brothers weren't being much help and the days were beginning to stack up. These Ute footprints may have been just the blessing they needed. So it was at this point they made the decision to turn east. California and Monterey are definitely due west, almost exactly due west. Now, of course, they didn't know that since they couldn't accurately find the correct longitudinal lines. But even they knew they were heading in the wrong direction. But it was worth it. They needed to finally find some Indians who actually knew the land. They needed to help from the locals. Quote, We decided to seek them out. End quote. Them being the Utes. Actually finding the footprints owners, that was easier said than done. Roberts writes, Once the team had reached the Dolores, a three-man party went ahead. Dominguez himself, accompanied by Andres Muñiz as interpreter and Juan Pedro Cisneros, to try to make contact with the Utes. For eight miles, they followed the tracks upstream without scaring up a single Indian. Escalante's account of that futile errand piles more mysterious onto the predicament in which the Spaniards felt they had become ensnared. The scouting party, following the footprints, quoting Escalante now, quote, ascertained that they were Tebawachi Utahs, but could not find them. After having gone as far as the point where the little Rio de las Paraliticas so named because the first of our own to see it found an encampment by its edge, three female Utahs with the infirmity of this name. Separates the Tebowachi Utahs from the Muwachi ones, the latter living in the south and the others to the north. End all quotes. Escalante and the Spanish called the Utes the Utahs, hence the name of the state, but also why I will read from here on out the Utahs when he quotes them. I will personally refer to them as Utes, though. In the footnotes of the journal, Ted Warner writes that the Mohachi Utahs are today known as the Moeti, Moetai, maybe, band of Utes. And apparently, the Tebowachi is a Ute word meaning people living on the warm side of the mountain. Which mountain? Well, 
They roamed from northern New Mexico to Pikes Peak in Colorado, so take your guess. There is a Tebowachi Peak in Colorado, north of San Luis Valley, which is where Great Sand Dunes National Park sits up against the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, the same mountains that reach all the way down into Santa Fe. The peak of Tebowachi is just south of Mount Princeton. I have been to the massive San Luis Valley many a times. The Great Sand Dunes is a favorite spot of mine. Not to mention, I love the UFO Watchtower just off of 17. I have also stayed at the Hot Springs Resort that sits below Mount Princeton. The Tebowachi's homeland is a beautiful place. So I'm not sure what they were doing this far west. Unless maybe the Comanche and Apache had forced them in that direction. Or unless maybe the guides were incorrect about who they were seeing. Ultimately, they were moved, the Tebowachis, to a reservation in southwest Colorado and became known as the Uncompagre Utes. And Uncompagre is a Ute word that means the rocks that make water red. Uncompagre is also a word that will be thrown around a lot because at this point in our journey, while they are looking for the Utes and following these mysterious footprints, they find themselves wandering today's rough and tumble Uncompagre Plateau after turning northeast, which is again in the wrong direction. One more note on that Escalante entry. He says the creek is known as the Creek of the Paralytics because someone, possibly Munez, possibly Rivera before them, not actually sure, but someone had previously seen three paralyzed Indian women at its banks and so named it the River of the Paralyzed. How Munez was able to recognize that little creek but not the mountains and canyons around him is beyond me. I'm almost certain he just made up a good story about that particular spot and told Escalante to make it seem like he knew exactly where he was. Or that place name does exist somewhere, but maybe not right at that exact spot. What, was he like, Oh yeah, I know this place, man. I once saw three paralyzed Indian women right on the banks of that river right there on that spot, man. That's crazy. That means these footprints here? He's a Tebowachi. Trust me, I know my footprints. I can picture Dominguez and Escalante rolling their eyes. How was he able to know who left the footprints? Despite following the fresh prints around present-day Disappointment Creek, they still wouldn't see an Indian for six more days. Disappointing indeed. On August 18th, they didn't want to cross the Dolores River because it was quite treacherous with steep cliffs and many a rock, with which they would have had to have crossed, not to mention the tall mesas, and they feared their horses' hooves would get worn out and bruised. They traveled on that day the least that they had traveled so far. Today the area is filled with various mines and barely traversable roads. A lot of the mines were for uranium. The Cold War wasn't going to win itself, and all those nuclear reactors on our subs and ships had to run on something, not to mention the Tens of thousands of nuclear bombs. On the 19th, stuck between the rough, wet canyon or a dry plateau with no water, panic begins to seep into the entries of the journal. And their quote-unquote guides, Munez brothers, weren't much help. Escalante writes, We conferred with the companions who had journeyed through this region as to which direction we should take in order to forestall so many difficulties. And each one had a different opinion. 
Therefore, finding ourselves in this quandary, not knowing if we could follow the path mentioned or if it was better to backtrack a little and take the trail which goes to the Savoirana, Utahs, we put our trust in God. End quote. While trying to find a way out of the canyon and towards the Tebahuachi, the group found another trail that the guides claim led to these Sabuaranas. Apparently the Munoz brothers are excellent footprint readers. Because they said, yeah, these, these are definitely Sabuarana Utahs, man, trust me. Escalante writes, albeit four days from this time, but he writes, quote, A Sabuarana chief is said by our interpreter and others to be very friendly toward the Spaniards and to know a great deal about the country. End quote. So, Andres Munez and others? Who are, the, who are the others? His brother? The two stowaways? He never specifies, but that would be nice if he had. So, the party now had a dilemma on their hands. To fix the problem, the Padres prayed and did some other Catholic recitation stuff, and then for the first time, but not the last time on this expedition, they decided to draw lots. Were they going the way they were presently going down, despite it being difficult and dangerous, to the Tebawachi? Or were they going to find the Sabuagana Utahs, a.k.a. the Moatavi Watsiu Utes? The method they used to draw the lots is completely unknown. But the one they drew was to head towards the Sabs. They were going to start looking for these new Indians. The Sabs, as I took to writing it out during research, just because it was yeah, shorter, and I actually wasn't even sure how to say Sabuagana, but the Sabs, a.k.a. the Sabuagana, a.k.a. the Moatavihuatsiu, are now also known as the Uncompagra Utes. Uh, they eventually joined the Tabawachi and other use as well, upon the benevolent insistence of the United States government in the 1800s. Best to deal with, aka conquer, best to deal with one unified tribe and chief than a bunch of separate and individual groups, the thinking was in Washington. This drawn lot and the decision to follow the trail to the Sobs, that did not go over well with their seasoned veteran. M&P apparently vociferously disagreed with their new route finding. Therefore, the Padres put Andres Munez in charge. After all, he was the one that said they were definitely for sure heading in a much better direction towards much better Indians. That also suggests that every now and then M&P would take over and lead the group, which is probably when they would get out of their tough binds. This passage from the journal then follows. Andres, the interpreter, took us over a high, rough incline. So rocky that we expected to find ourselves forced to backtrack from halfway up. For the mounts were being so much abused that many of them were marking the spot on the stones with the blood which these were drawing from their hind and forefeet. We climbed it with the most trying labor, and at the end of Several northbound hours, after having gone about a quarter league in the ascent, we traveled a mile northwest atop the crest. And from here, we saw that the trail went along the base of this mesa and over good and entirely level terrain. End quote. So all of that climbing and bleeding was for nothing. 
Why'd they even leave the trail and climb the hill in the first place? Munia's brothers swing and miss again. You just know M&P was fuming at not being listened to. And then, going down while not rocky was very steep and trying. And then they found themselves enveloped in a painful field of prickly pear cactus. And then they were in yet another dry arroyo dead end canyon. At the end of the grueling and aggravating day, they only went 10 miles, and they didn't see a single Sabuagana. Again, Mieta y Pacheco, and by now everyone probably, must have been quite chapped. Roberts writes this of the end of that rough day. At the end of the day, however, just when tempers must have been stretched to the breaking point, the men stumbled upon a generous pool of water fed by a small spring. And not only were there abundant footprints among the spring, but also the ruins of huts. Ute wiki-ups. The Sabuaranas had camped here, though how long before, no one could say. End quote. The next two days were filled with bad canyons and waterless stretches and plenty of rough land and rough desert prickly plants and probably much frustration. It almost seems like aimless wandering. They would hit rivers and creeks, though. They were still heading northeast on the 23rd of August towards what they hoped would be Ute Indians. Instead, they passed more dry land. At least they finally found some grass at one point for their horses, which apparently they had been desiring, needing. At this point, Escalante confusingly wrote that they were now expecting to run into Tebawachi Utes instead of the Sabs. Go figure. I chalked that up to the Munez. Near this grassy area, they also found some Anasazi, or Fremont, more likely ruins, that seemed to have been repurposed as a fortification against some sort of attacks. At least that's what Escalante wrote. Although they could have just looked that way. These ruins have yet to be rediscovered in the modern era. And you know, I would love to be the one to find them one day. But on that day, the 23rd of August, the DNE expedition finally found what they've been so desperately searching for the past few days. Yet in the journal, none of the joy and excitement they no doubt felt is portrayed throughout these passages. Quote, After one league of travel to the northeast and another to the east, we were overtaken by a Tabawachi Utah, who was the first one we had seen in all that we had traveled until now. In order to talk with him at leisure, we halted near the beginning of the water source where we had rested, and here we named it La Fuente de la Ruilla, the guide's fountain. We gave him something to eat and to smoke, and afterward, through the interpreter, we asked him various questions about the land ahead, the rivers, and their course. We also asked him where the Tebawachis, Muwachis, and Sabuaranas were. At first, he denied knowing anything, even the country where he lived. End quote. Could this Tebawachi Ute, could he have been briefed by his elders to not help these Spaniards and to keep them away from their lands? just as the Utes had done over a decade before with Rivera? Or was it truly as Escalante suggests, and this guy, who was on horseback, mind you, but could this guy really just have been so scared as to not be able to answer? Doubtful. Escalante continues, After the Ute had lost some of the fear and suspicion with which he conversed with us, 
He said that the Sabuaranas were all in their own country and that soon we would be meeting them. End quote. This man then uh, went on to describe in detail the lay of the land and the people. Escalante studiously wrote it all down. Afterwards, Escalante suggested towards this Tebawachi man that maybe, possibly, he might want to be their guide, at least to the chieftain of this friendly band of Sabuarana Utes. Pretty please. To the party's relief, and to my surprise, this man eventually agrees on condition that they wait for him here at this watering hole until he arrives back in the morning. They all agreed that this was good, and off he went, maybe to talk it over with his people. Do they follow the same playbook they had thus far of avoiding the Spanish, especially now that these guys were pretty far north and pretty deep into their territory, and avoiding them will get increasingly more difficult as they approach their camps, Or do they use the Rivera playbook and deflect, deflect, deflect? Of course, without telling them that they're deflecting. The following morning, before the sun was at midday, the man returned. And he brought with him his family of two women and five children, of which two of the children were at the breast. So new little babies. Escalante remarks that they were all, quote, good-looking and agreeable, end quote. So this good-looking little family also brought them some tanned deer skins, some dried manzanita berries, and, quote, other articles to barter, end quote. But remember, these guys were not there to trade with the Indians. At least, not yet. They weren't in dire need quite yet during this trip. So trading was a no-go, as everyone had promised before leaving... It isn't like they brought much to trade with anyways, honestly. This, though, uh, this lack of wanting to trade, it naturally confused the Ute man and his family at first. If you're not wandering around here wanting to trade, then why on earth are you wandering around here? I think the Padres could sense the questions and accusations and possible fear forming in the minds of these Utes. (sighs) That reminds me of my cousin Benny. I... So maybe the DNA expedition could sense that the Utes were wondering, why are you here? Is it a dangerous expedition? So since they did not want to seem like conquerors, after explaining they weren't there to trade, the Spaniards did some trading. They exchanged some flour for some venison and some manzanita berries, which Escalante had earlier written that they were, quote, like grapes and very tasty, end quote. And then, eventually, the Ute man accepted two knives and 16 strings of white glass beads for his services as a guide. Again, though, would this man guide them to their intended destination, or was he going to pull the Rivera on them? I would certainly think this man was old enough to remember Rivera's Entrada, right? It was only 11 years before. So far... They've been out on the road for 28 long, arduous and beautiful days filled with intrigue and danger, a deception and a little drama. But the expedition was just getting started. And the road ahead was even longer and tougher than anyone on the team anticipated it would be. How long and tough? Well, you'll have to tune in next time for part two. Uh, This one will be a four-parter. And... 
Next time, they will arrive at the camp of the Sabuhanas before plunging even deeper into the unknown and towards that mythical land of Tewayo. Stay tuned, and I'll be seeing you again in the American Southwest.